What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. For those of you that are new here, thank you for joining. I am your host, Ethan Bridge. Before I dive into the intro, I'd greatly appreciate if you pulled out your phone, opened up the podcast app and left a five star rating and review. It literally takes a matter of seconds and you don't even have to stop listening. On today's episode of the podcast, I had the pleasure in speaking to Adam Creek. Adam is one of North America's top management consultants and executive coaches with degrees and certifications from Stanford University, UBC Sorda School of Business and Queen's Smith School of Business. He is a guest lecturer at the University of Victoria and teaches strategies and skills of self-leadership, leadership, high performance and perseverance to corporate and government teams globally through keynotes, workshops and online seminars. Adam has coached, trained and taught hundreds of thousands of people, including teams at Microsoft, General Electric, Mercedes-Benz, L'Oreal, Shell and most importantly, Adam walks the talk. As an entrepreneur, Adam runs two small corporations, Creekspeak Business Solutions and Ergo Eco Solutions, a low carbon initiative that connects small businesses with small governments. Long-term clients include leadership teams from the aerospace, healthcare, nutrition and clean energy sectors. Adam is a husband, father of three and an active volunteer in his community and nationally through his work past and present with various health, youth empowerment and human rights not-for-profit organisations. A two-time Olympian, Adam holds 60 international medals including Olympic gold and multiple Hall of Fame inductions. In 2013, Adam made the first ever attempt to row unsupported across the Atlantic Ocean from Africa to America, the subject of the NBC Dateline documentary Capsized. Adam's new book, The Responsibility Ethic, teaches us the how of self-leadership, driving personal and professional results in individuals and organizations. I can't express how interesting this conversation is. As someone who is incredibly interested in sport, Adam was fascinating to talk to, and I can't wait for you all to listen to what he has to say. So without any further ado, let's dive straight into the episode. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. I have a great episode in store for you today as my guest is Adam Creek. Adam, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderfully. Thanks for asking. That's okay. And that's (laughs) brilliant news because that means this podcast episode is going to be brilliant. So for the listeners who don't know who you are, if you don't mind just giving us a quick 60-second introduction of who you are and what you do, please. Yeah, my name is Adam Creek. I am an executive business coach uh, who specializes in uh, self-leadership and executive team management. I tend to work with um, uh, organizations that are you know, 500 people plus, but I work all the way down to individual entrepreneurs. Uh, I'm a published author, just published a book, uh, and I speak at conferences and, and do trainings you know, all over the world. The, you know, what led me to this career was my athletic past. Uh, I went to the Olympics a few times. I won the world championships uh, three times as a senior, one time as an under 23. I won the Olympics. I'm an Olympic champion in eight-man rowing. That's my sport. I'm, a, I'm an old rower. I still row. I've got a rowing machine in my garage. I hop in the boat with uh, 40-year-old men, and we row down the river every once in a while, which is great. 
Uh, I also took a rowboat. It took me five years to plan this and execute it, but I took a rowboat and launched from Dakar, Senegal, fully self-supported, so no one came with us. Uh, we rowed across the Atlantic Ocean. We capsized in the Bermuda Triangle. That was crazy. The capsize, the 73 days before that were connective and beautiful and reflective and just that magic that occurs when you completely disconnect from society. Um, I have three children, a wife, and um, I work hard. I mean, <laughs> where do I start? <laughs> you have so much. Your background is so vast that I have got so many questions. But okay. before we dive into that, I do like to throw it back with all my guests and ask them about their childhood, childhood and specifically how they were in school. So let's focus on let's say a 14 year old version of yourself how were you okay. in school what did you do were you the class clown or were you heading books straight a's every single time well i would i would trend towards uh, being the class clown when i was 14 i was in high school in canada in a town called london ontario I went to Saunders secondary school i had a lot of energy so i remember math class was the first uh you know, class of the period. And my teacher would always get me to collect the attendances. She'd say, you, Creek, with all the energy, you run down the hall, take all the, collect all the attendances and bring them down to the office. Uh, I, you know, I'd get up early in the morning and I'd, uh, I'd go to rowing practice at, at 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. Then I'd come and I'd go to band practice from 6.30 to 7.30. Then I'd go through all my classes through the day. Then I'd go to football or basketball practice after school and um, you know, get home, do my homework, crash into bed at 8 p.m. and do it all over again. So lots of energy and uh, wasn't a, an A-plus student, but managed to get A's in most of what I did or B's. And um, hated hated like writing and like English. I was more inclined towards math and uh, science. I like wood shop. I like building things. But that was that was me when I was fourteen. Had uh, two older sisters. Uh, oldest sister was in two. They were in university at the time. Older brother who's in school. Uh, mom and dad. Mom was a stay at home mom. My dad is a uh, you know, highly introverted uh, investment planner. So how were they when it came to your sport? Were they very high-pressure parents when it came to pushing you down your rowing career, or was it just out of choice that you wanted to pursue that avenue? It was, um, yeah, it was very... My parents were very supportive. Uh, they are very religious. Uh, they are Baptist, uh, Christian, and uh, I was raised in, like, they, they take me to church every Sunday, uh, went to youth group as a kid, uh, didn't stay up with that practice as I got older, but I think that was certainly foundational in a lot of you know, the ethic and attitude that I have. Um, the, yeah, at the end of the day, they, my mom said, you, you know, you need to join band or sport. Uh, that's just part, if you want to have a, you know, satisfying high school experience. You got to get involved. Uh, if you don't get involved, it'll all fall apart. So that was that was one thing that she pushed it. Didn't matter what I did. Just do something, and uh, as long as you're doing something, then we'll support you as best we can. And that's what 
that's where I was introduced to rowing. I was, uh, I was introduced to rowing in high school um, around the age of 14. Started it with a summer camp, and then a local parent started up a rowing team at my high school. And after a year or two of, of actually doing the sport, he took me aside and he said, hey, Adam, you're an Olympian. You just, you just don't know it yet. And that completely changed my course. He, he planted that seed of, yeah, this Olympic thing could be possible. And um, it, yeah, it just, it went on from there. Was that because of your natural ability or what did he look at, say, your physique? Because I know when it comes to rowing, especially sometimes over here, there are scouts that go out looking for active individuals that look like they could be rowers, tall, long arms, long legs, long levers. Yeah. They were good at rowing. Were you, did he say that you'd be an Olympian because of that or were you just naturally gifted? I think he said it was partially because of yeah, my, my body size, I'm six foot, when I was, well, I was six foot four, 165 pounds in high school. I ended up building out to be like 225, 230. But uh, I think it was partially body size as well as just mindset of, you know, the mm-hmm. way I committed to things. And he said, you know, that you have it. And I've seen, I've seen people, you know, not everybody can do it. And not every mindset can do it if you don't have the body, but he said you've got you've got a good combination. And if you want to go all the way and compete internationally, you've got a good shot at it. And he was, he was his name was Walt Benko, um, and you know, very great coach. I feel kind of blessed to have him. There's another guy, Peter Carson, as well, who was very helpful along the way. But Walt was the guy who um, he had seen. He saw the end point, and he. Um, he just inspired me to, you know, to take that path. And he also, another interesting thing that he had said was, uh, don't push too hard too early and make sure that you're staying diversified when you're young, because if you specialize mm-hmm. too early, you risk injury and you risk uh, burnout. So yeah. through all throughout my high school, I didn't, there were guys who would constantly beat me in high school. And they'd always beat me at regattas and races because they were training in the sport of rowing twice a day, three times a day. And I was, but I'd only do it, you know, maybe once a day or once every other day and do a bunch of other sports as well. Hmm. So the, you know, the lack of specialization, uh, I think helped me, especially when, when I started leaping up to the next levels, uh, and, and dialing in, I had, I had a broader base of athleticism that put me at an advantage uh, to other teammates who, who weren't as athletic um, because of the, you know, again, if you're running and jumping, if you're playing American football, that's a very different skill set than rowing. Um, and if you're lifting weights, that's also very different than playing basketball. So all these, uh, you know, all these different motions just played into you know, general uh, fitness and athleticism that I think helped me when I was at the the top level. For sure. And I must ask this question because there are very few people I can actually ask this question. How does it feel to be an Olympic gold medalist, to stand up at the top of that podium, hear the national anthem playing and know that you are the best at what you do in that specific category? Really good. What was going? 
<laughs> to put it simply, yeah. What was going through your head standing at the top of that podium? Well, there's uh, actually, I think there's a video that um, I may have put it up there. Someone put it up there. And if you look up Sing Like Creek, uh, my last name, K-R-E-E-K, Sing Like Creek. The, and I guess there's a story from the, that going around that too, because uh, and you can see what I, what I was going through, you know, in that moment. But when, when we were there, we're finally, you're finally the Olympic champion. You've trained in your sport for 16 years and you've, you've had this idea of, of pushing for the Olympics and being Olympic champion for maybe eight years. And you're standing there with your friends. They're your closest friends in the world. Uh, you've, you know, you've spent eight years training with them for this moment. And so that moment is finally there. On top of it, you're physically exhausted because you just cranked the hardest rowing race that you've ever done in your life. So your body is just saturated with lactic acid. So you, you don't have this, um, the energy to resist the emotions you have. Um, and as well, you're highly physical and highly primed. So you're, you're more primal in your emotional response. So unreserved, unrestricted flag starts to raise the anthem is is playing you're with your friends um you're all wearing you know spandex lycra it's uh <laughs> it's just a good thing and but then your heart starts to swell and I remember thinking i'm either going to, to cry and sob or i'm going to sing and so i've I kind of pushed the tears away by starting to sing the, our national anthem. So national anthem started to play. I was singing and then all of the guys around me started to sing too. And that just gave me more energy to like sing louder. And so we were all singing. And at that same point in time, so it was just unrestricted joy. Um, and uh, there was a triathlete at that time by the name of Simon Whitfield. And he had won Olympic gold in Sydney. And now here we are in Beijing. And he was watching this. We had trained in the same city uh, and had some interaction leading up to the Beijing Games. And so he was watching that, watching a race, and he's looking for motivation for his competition. He said, you know what? I want to, you know, I want to race like these guys, you know, this Olympic eight. And I want to just want to go for it and, you know, you know, just be unrelenting in the way that we, that I push. And then he saw the way that we were singing on the podium and he saw the way that I specifically was just going crazy. <laughs> and I was like, I want to have that kind of joy. I want to have that unrestrained joy. On the, and so I want to sing like Creek. So he ends up writing sing like Creek on the handlebars of his bike. And that becomes his mantra. So he goes and he does, he does his race afterwards and he does the swim. And he hops on the bike and he does his bike. And the whole time he's looking at sing like Creek, sing like Creek. And then he gets into the run, which is the strongest part. And he's behind the pack and he starts moving forward, moving forward. Then he's in this pack of five. And we've got these five guys that are just, they're running together and the pack starts to stretch out. And the four guys go and, and Simon's behind. And then it's coach from the, um, you know, from the sidelines says, Simon, sing like Creek. So he takes his hat and he throws it down on the ground and he puts a sprint in and he sprints past uh, three of the guys, uh, wins the silver medal. And, uh, Incredible. You know, has a great Olympics experience. But and I mean, uh, yeah. that's, that's on, honestly, and to be able to know that 
you've worked that hard and it actually pays off. And with you, with the Canadian national anthem, you get quite a long time on that podium. The British, we get like 20 seconds. Our national anthem <laughs> is so short. <laughs> so you get so short for much longer than anyone from where I'm from does. So. I've never actually thought about that, how short the British anthem is. But it's that's, that's that like two verses. <laughs> I need to change it for the sake of our Olympians. Um, but yeah, that's honestly to know that you to just feel that self accomplishment. You must have felt so relieved at the time as well, because even the mental side of it must have been draining. Preparing yourself mentally. Did you have a like a mental coach that taught you through how to act before the race and put yourself in that that mode to succeed as such and then win well our, well our our primary mental coach was actually our olympic coach uh, mike spracklin who's a brit himself he's from henley on the thames um mm-hmm. or just outside henley on the thames actually uh marlow is the uh, yeah. small town that he's from but uh he was our primary um he was a primary mental coach and he'd come up and he'd say things like hey you boys look nervous <laughs> Oh, that's 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 wonderful. You're not going to win an Olympic gold medal if you're not nervous. Oh, <laughs> or he, another thing he would say as we were training, because like by the time it comes to activate, it's a lot of it is on autopilot. Mm. You know, one of my teammates he would say he said it the best. You know, gold medals are awarded in the summer but they're earned in the winters and we put yeah. in four long, hard winters. And this is part of the CEO podcast is that, you know, it's, it's the grinding in the deep, dark cave when you're sitting there doubting yourself, um, you know, shedding tears that really sets you up for, you know, that race of glory that you can, you, you can experience and, you know, and leave as a bit of a legacy. But, um, you know, from a mental coach standpoint, you know, the nerves are there to help you. Um, you, know, you know, the grinding happens in the winter. Another thing our, my coach would often say is like, hey, would you rather row with your friends and lose <laughs> or row with an asshole and win? It's true. It's got that guy at the front shouting at you. <laughs> exactly, the little coxswain. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, I think those were, and a big part of it was, um, you know, and I worked with a couple of other, we had a sports psychologist, uh, but the sports psychologists tend to be, tended to be more helpful for me. Uh, I dealt with some injuries and that's where I found him, him to be helpful to deal. My coach was good at like pushing you in the moment, but when you fell off the horse, the sports psychologist was helpful to get you back on the horse. My coach wasn't good at that. He was good at pushing you until you broke and then <laughs> and helping you find that, that limit in, in the context of, of creating a stressful environment. But uh, so that was helpful. And then I also had, um, I don't know what you want to call you know, in the depths of, of injury. I had kind of a bit of a, uh, you want to call her spiritual advisor or energy healer that I worked with. And she was also very helpful. And she, she introduced some very counterintuitive paradigms um, that I found very helpful. You know, the, you know, being an Olympian is about having a goal and wanting to have an outcome. Uh, but she was able to uh, train me to let 
to let go of the outcome and focus on on the process a little bit more and the irony exists that when when you become detached from the outcome the outcome is more likely to be achieved and that's yeah. that idea has become more clear to me the more that i've aged um, but that was very helpful you know the I guess I'll, I'll say it one more time. We, we need an outcome if you're going to you know, push, right? You need a goal if you're going to push, but you also need to detach from that outcome if you want it to be achieved in its full glory because the universe has plans that you haven't even thought about uh, that will come into play. For sure. And it also leads in nicely to what I want to talk about. You very kindly sent me your book before we recorded this episode and you pointed out that so basically your book is split up into ethics for anyone that hasn't read, um, read the book it's split down into different ethics and ethic four is what we're going to focus on today which is taking responsibility for your stress and you mentioned in the book that stress is the number one motivator of productive change and you need to think of stress like your bicep it will only get stronger if you stress the muscle fibers and neurological pathways and then let them recover. So mm-hmm. would you mind just going into a bit more detail for the listeners on that one? Well, some people try to avoid stress because stress is uncomfortable, uh, but stress is the precursor to growth. The conversation that is often missed, and especially when you talk about, I mean, watch a guy like Elon Musk is a great example. He will talk so much about how hard he works, but very little of his conversation cycles around about how well he recovers. And I would hazard a guess to say this guy must recover very well if he's able to push that hard. And that's part of the secret of, you know, to be a great Olympian, you need to be able to have focused pushes and focus work, and you also need to have times that you recover. Uh, the, you know, the beauty of, um, of stress is that it, it drives us into growth. Um, some people say, will say that like, life is a marathon. You know, it's a long, it's a long journey. So you need to, you need to pace yourself. And I think there's an element of that that is true. But I prefer the metaphor that life is a series of sprints where you push hard and recover. You push hard and recover. Uh, and I think that's, that's mo- more effective. And there's different ways that you, you know, we need to be very conscious in the way that an athlete would be conscious. So as, as a CEO, as someone who's running a business, founding a business, uh, if you have family responsibilities or community responsibilities outside of those businesses, all these things will have, um, have, have effects on your, on your being, your, your, your emotional being, um, your spiritual being, your emotional being, and, um, uh, and your physical being. And so each of these, you need to make sure that you're, you're, um, you're scheduling productive recovery for each of them. So you're, um, you know, I'll bring back to the Olympics because that was, uh, that's a great metaphor uh, to, to talk about. And so as, as Olympic athlete, we would, we would have daily pushes. We'd have three practices every single day, but in between each practice, you have recovery. Right after practice, you eat your food within a 15-minute time frame to make sure you've, you've optimized recovery. Um, you, you try to, to meditate and get yourself uh, into a, a state of, 
of relaxation so your body can can recover. Uh, one of the things is you know, trying to avoid things like video games in between so that your your brain isn't isn't hyper stimulated that you're just you're in in a relaxed uh, flowing state so that next time it comes to to hit hard that that you can hit hard. Uh, and so every day you have you have recovery in between practices and even refining that in uh, within every practice we'll do pieces and in between each piece you know we'll have a recovery and then even refining it further within every stroke you put the blade in the water and you pull and that's the work phase then you take the blade out of the water and you recover so there's even even in your your regular motion there's recovery that's happening so in every and then as you build it out on a grander scale Every Wednesday afternoon, we had time off. Every Saturday and Sunday was time off. No, you don't even you know, think about rowing, you just deal with other things. And then on a broader standpoint, we would have, um, we'd have two weeks off after every world championships. And during that time is the time to, like, to do nothing and to do nothing related to your sport. And over a four year period, you'd have, you do less work uh, the two years, the first two years of a quadrennial, you do more work uh, the last two years of a quadrennial building up to the Olympics. So you have, you have a four-year plan, you have recovery built into each of them, you have different types of work that occur, you know, the winter is low, longer base training, the summer is higher, more intense training, and you know, you know what your yearly plan is from work, from recovery, from stress, from recovery. And that's um, and that's how you get stronger, and that's how you uh, build more. And so then, moving into the CEO space, you know, if you're if you're starting a company and you're a startup world, or you're you're um, you're in a fast-paced environment, you know, the likelihood is that you just want to be on and go 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 all the time. But the problem is, but if you go 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 all the time, you'll eventually reach burnout. And it was, you know, there was an example I saw even when I was an athlete. Uh, you'd have you'd have athletes who would focus on their work and they'd focus on the recovery and they'd be able to they would perform consistently at a much higher level than the athletes who would focus on the work and then they'd come off and then they'd focus on um, you know marketing and promoting themselves and getting sponsors and trying to build up other sides of of their you know trying to do too much outside of their sport and well, that can work over the short term, over the long term. I would see this consistently. The athlete's performance would decline because they're doing too much. Uh, and, you know, in the time when they're supposed to recover, they're, you know, they're having phone calls and they're setting up things and they're trying to make their Instagram account perfect and, and all these things that can be very uh, distracting to the, um, you know, to the core goal. And the core goal is, you know, performance in the sport. And so then bringing this back to, um, you know, to, to, you know, to the business types who are out there and, you know, the, you know, the CEOs and aspiring CEOs out there, how are you periodizing your recovery on a daily basis? How are you periodizing your recovery on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, quarterly basis, yearly basis, uh, quadrennial basis? And you need to start thinking not just in periods of work and goals, but also periods of recovery and um, regeneration. Again, you know, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual are all pieces of the puzzles that we need to uh, be, be paying attention to.
for sure and i know you touched on meditation in there selfishly i want to ask for some tips on that because 20 i've set myself a goal in 2020 to start meditating but i i know little to nothing about it i've just been listening to a few youtube videos here and there trying to wrap my head around it because i've heard it's incredible i've never really taken any notice of it until people started mentioning it on the podcast people bringing it up more and more in the podcast i listen to the books i read and if everyone else is doing it that's successful you've got to look up to the people that you want to be like so I'm put it into my goals for 2020 and I want to start doing it. So have you got any tips for me to start? I do. I'll start with a question and then I'll give some information and then I'll ask another question. Sure. How about that? Um, have you ever been lost in doing something, whether like you're fixing a car and all of a sudden you're like, you're taking apart the piece of the engine and then uh, putting it back together and you get, totally lost in space or uh, you do it you're making a piece of artwork or you've you're going on a run and you just get lost and all of a sudden time passes quickly have you ever had that experience i wouldn't say specifically like that but i've sometimes been having a conversation with someone zoned out thought about something because i've got so much in my mind and then zone oh. back in like oh well what was that but not specifically what you say there okay so that's um so this will be somewhat of a new experience. So there's um, there's three types of meditation that are major and that we can have. The first one is focused meditation, where you focus on a given thing. The second type of, uh, of meditation is loving kindness, where you focus on an emotion that you want to channel, you want to train this, this emotional uh, state. And the third one is mindfulness, and just being hyper-aware of everything that's happening. And I think the, the best place to start from what I've, uh, just through my training in, in meditation, is focused meditation, because it, it helps you observe your thinking mind. And like you said, you, you've already observed your thinking mind. You're having a conversation and then your yeah. mind goes somewhere else and then you bring it back. And it's probably done that a couple of times, even right now in our conversation yeah. together. Right? And that's just, that's just what, the, like what the mind does, right? Yeah. It just runs away and it comes back. It runs away and it comes back. And part of focused meditation, I was, the first training I got was uh, through TM, Transcendental Meditation. Uh, which is a great method, uh, and it's what they. But there's a lot of other. Um, there's another book, uh, Herbert Benson, called the Relaxation Response, uh, which talks more about focused meditation. And the the idea of this is you pick a you pick a mantra, or a word, or a sound, or something, and you say it over and over in your head. And so you you say it, and you sit there for 20 minutes, and you go, you know. My word that I was given was shiriam. So I go shiriam, 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 shiriam. And I'll sit there. And I'll sit there and I'll watch the word and I'll listen to the word. And there's no rhythm or pattern to it. And what will happen is I'll eventually get into a, like, <clears throat> eventually get into a bliss state where everything, where I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in that meditative flow. I, I can recognize it now. I got that a lot when I was rowing because you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. And then you just, you, oh, okay. It's kind of like a, similar to a runner's high or um, you know, kind of a cardio high that you can get. But you just get it sitting there. But what will happen is you'll, you'll watch the word, you'll listen to the word, and sometimes the word will come and sometimes it'll go and it won't be there. 
Yeah. And sometimes you'll have the word and there'll be thoughts overhead. And then sometimes there will be no thoughts. And sometimes there'll be thoughts and sometimes there'll be thoughts and you'll completely forget that you're meditating and you're just sitting there with your eyes closed. And then you'll be like impatient, like, is this done yet? Should I be doing something else? And that's the, that's the monkey mind jumping around. And you just watch and it's like, oh. And the goal is to be, have compassion towards that, that mind, the mind, because it's right here is your, this is the mind that you're saying, hey, you know what? Hey, prefrontal cortex, just take a break here. We're just, shh, 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 shh. You look like you don't have any babies, but it remi- almost reminds me of like having a, like having a newborn child and you're just like, shh, 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 shh. Like, it's okay. Just, you know, just calm yeah. down. You're going to be okay. Like it's, you know, <laughs> and then eventually they, they calm down. So you're kind of doing the same thing. Like, shh, 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 shh. And you're trying to activate more of your, you know, your limbic brain and your, your deeper brain. And uh, eventually as you watch the monkey in the cage rattle, rattle around, eventually it calms down. And then that's when bliss state comes in and and you're like, oh, okay. Then, then there's some recovery that occurs, and meditation is about recovery. So you, you're really recovering the prefrontal cortex, and ideas will come in. And this is where I like about meditation is that ideas will come in while I'm meditating, and I'll say, well, now's not the time to act on those ideas. And if it's really important, I'll act on them afterwards. And what it ends up doing is is gives more focus and volition to the actions I take, and. Um, I find it's more, it um, just creates more effectiveness in, in the work that I do, more focus in the work I do. And it's, and again, it's, it's training. It's, um, it's uncomfortable because you're sitting there and if you first start doing it, you'd be like, I don't want to be doing this. I want to be doing something else. Yeah. That's, that's how it's supposed to be. (laughs) That's really interesting. And thank you for advising me because I just don't, I didn't know where to start. And I think there's, oh, you hear all of these different terms and I'm thinking, oh, what, where do I even begin? There's so much that can go on here. Um, but no, it's real. I find it so interesting. This is something I've become increasingly more interested about and something I definitely want to take into my own well, where life. Do, where do you, are, are you in England right now? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's gotta be a meditation center. Somewhere. There will be. Like, and if, even if you Google it, I would, and I would highly recommend more than just doing the self-help thing. Cause, and that's very popular on the internet. Oh, do self-help, watch this video, do this. But I've all, I've had more success sitting down with an individual in person um, and seeing what they can, they can help me do. But, uh, and there's got like meditation is so useful and popular. There's find a meditation center, show up. And see if you like it, first of all. Yeah. If you don't like it, that doesn't mean you don't like meditation. Meditation is like sport. I mean, I know you're an athlete. There's, you know, like I said, there's three main types of meditation, but underneath each of those, there's, you know, there's hundreds of different yeah. ways that you can meditate. And if one doesn't work for you, try another one, try another one, try another one. And eventually you'll find, oh, this is, this is the practice that will work for me at this time. And, uh, Again, it's, you know, and it's effective recovery practice just to speed up recovery, gain more uh, control of, you know, spiritual, mental, emotional states. So you, do you do it every day? Most days, yeah, most days. And I'll say, 
Often I will do more mindfulness meditation these days, and I do that in on my I do it like on my rowing machine or while I'm running or being in nature. And that's uh, there's been points in times where I've been where it's been very stressful, and I'll I'll go back to the the sitting meditation. And uh, someone told me this, and it's so true, and it's so hard to do, but um, when when you feel like you don't have the time, you need to meditate you know, 20 minutes a day. And when you really, really, really feel like you don't have any time, you need to meditate an hour a day. Yeah. And so... I like so that. The, That's good. <laughs> and so it's a... Um, the, the purpose of meditation is to shut off prefrontal cortex, allow it to recover and train um, train focus and uh, train positive emotional states and mental states. For sure. There's honestly, there's so many questions I want to ask you that I might have to get you back on the podcast at a later date because I've, I've only brushed the surface, but I know we've only got a certain allotted of time and there is a certain way I like to end all of my episodes with three more questions. Um, so I'd love to have you back because God I want to ask you more, but okay. I know there is only a certain amount of detail I can go into in an hour call. But so the way I like to round off all my episodes is on three questions that I don't think are asked enough Um, because people are almost too scared to ask the questions. So I ask them. Um, And these (laughs) questions are related to money, relationships and death. Okay. Money, relationships and death. Okay. Death, morbid way to end the episode, but I'll get super interesting. Um, I love thinking about death. (laughs) (laughs) So, I'll I'll give a bit of context for the first one because I personally don't think it directly relates to money. But those starting out on their entrepreneurial journey, or those that don't have money, might think that this word relates to money. So the question is, what does the word success mean to you? And if you were to ask that person in normal conversation, you tend to instantly relate that to how much money do they make? But mm. when really there could be something deeper, why can't success be, def- success be defined upon how happy you are? Your accomplishments in life doesn't have to be monetary related. How stable and much of a happy, how, how, how is your family life? Things like, why can't success be related to those aspects? Why does it instantly refer to money in people's minds when we ask the question? So my question to you is what does the word success mean to you well there's a couple of things that have come to mind um the first one i think is you know you're a man i'm a man you know within within the world i think we're familiar with you know the stresses on on the female conditions and women will be out there saying you know i don't like being a sex object and uh the issue there's a lot of pressures on especially on men and young men uh to be a success object and I think, you know, giving it that label, and that name, that, that men become success objects to be attractive to the opposite sex. And it's, it's a deeper drive that we all have within us, um, as, you know, especially on the male side of the spectrum. I'm not saying that females uh, don't have it, but I'm speaking from my, um, my position as a man. That success, you know, there's, there's social forces and biological forces that drive us to, to be successful just from... Um, just sheer, you know, bioevolutionary terms. 
from more of a like spiritual emotional process having climbed to the top of the mountain and gotten to the other side uh there's success uh isn't all that it's built up to be you know it's not about what you get it's about what you become so success isn't about what you get it's about what you become and within the book the responsibility ethic i talk about that a little bit more i say you know there's there's toxic goals and there's um four goals that I call the fantastic four. And if we pursue toxic goals, which are um, money, fame and status, um, beauty and sex. So those are the three toxic goals. If we're pursuing those as, as their own endpoints, you know, I want to be, you know, beautiful and I want to have lots of sex. You know, those are all good things. But if that's your end goal, that's going to be very unfulfilling. I want to have a ton of money and I want to be really rich. And have and if that's your once you get there, it's going to be unfulfilling. And, you know, fame and status, I want to have the power, I want to have the influence. Well, it's, it's a nice to have, but if that's all that you're going for, when you finally get that, it's, there's emptiness. And really what we need to be, be driving for is a stronger sense of self-awareness, um, an ability to deliver more value to, um, to the community, building authentic relationships with other people, like real connective authentic relationships and uh, health and wellness. And those are, those are the fantastic four. And what's funny is that there's been a lot of research done on the contrast of these two, especially the three toxic goals. There's uh, um, Tim Kasser is one of the guys who looked into it and you find people who pursue toxic goals, not only are less satisfied, but they're more likely to be addicted to harmful substances and you know, harm themselves. And they're also more likely to engage in behaviors that are harmful to, uh, you know, harmful to society and the environment and, and that kind of thing. So what I says, and I, I even have this on my wall right here which is, I think, an important reminder by Mr. Thoreau. Can you read that? What you get by achieving your goals is not as important as what you become by achieving your goals. I like that. Yeah. I think that's, when we talk about success, that's, that's what success is. And um, as a man, be, be aware of the fact that you're a success object in the way that women are sex objects. And that's, that's a driver that's out there. And when you're aware, you can deal with it. And when you, we have words and labels, we can deal with it. And I think that's just, that's one of the challenges uh, we need to deal with. That is probably the best answer I've had to that question so far. So well done. That was incredibly, incredibly well-structured and almost as if you prepared it, but he hadn't, everyone. He hadn't. That was straight off the cuff. Um, next question then, uh, in regards to relationships, is throughout your journey so far, have you found it difficult to maintain relationships, whether that be with family, friends, a significant other, or have you just found a way to bring these people on your journey with you? Well, relationships take focused effort. Um, you know, even, yeah, what? Well, I've been married for close to 20 years now. We're not married, but with the same woman for 20 years. I've been married for like 15 years. Um, and even last weekend, she made me so angry that I put my fist through a door. I said, <laughs> the, the poor door. But Jesus. The poor door. The door. <laughs> so I had to fix the door and, and eat my crow. Um, but the relationships take work and mm. they're um, you need to make them a goal and priority if you want them. 
um, even friend relationships. I was, that's one of the things you lose when you transition from, from high performance team sport into the world of, of business. And this is even, you know, as, you know, as CEOs and or aspiring CEOs and individual entrepreneurs, it's a lonely job and a lonely journey. So you have, if, if you're feeling that loneliness, you know, it's not a problem until it is a problem. And if it is a problem, you know, it's a problem. So if it is a problem, set a goal for building relationships. And, uh, I've, I've done that even on my entrepreneurial and professional journey. I've built uh, professional coaching relationships, you know, with, uh, with coaches, but I've also developed, you know, a peer group relationships uh, with other entrepreneurs. And I found that to be very useful. Um, I've got a group that I work with. We, we train every week, just physically, physical training. Uh, and then uh, there's a few of us that get together every quarter and we do, um, business, business consulting, uh, and, and training. We, we plan our business goals and we have like deep, open, honest conversations. And those are, those are connective real relationships uh, that I have with, um, you know, with other people, with other, you know, with other men. I find that very valuable having, um, a few deep relationships with other men. Uh, that's, um, that's very useful and, and needed in, in my life anyways. And yeah. uh, so I'm not sure what the answer to that question is, but relationships, how have I, how have I kept them going? One, recognizing that they're a lot of work and even, yeah. and they can be angering and especially romantic ones. <laughs> you can, you can work through them. And if, if there is something missing, you have to make it a goal and a priority and uh, a and make it a state of priority to, to actually work through it for sure and so as you say they just take work you've got to be willing to work at them to make them work um so final question and it's a very simple one are you afraid of dying no just completely <laughs> i mean it's, <laughs> I kind of well it's weird i welcome death to to a certain extent and yeah. i've been I've been in a number of near-death situations in my life. Uh, I've started out when I was a kid. I worked on the oil rigs up in northern Alberta uh, drilling, and I had a couple of big pieces of steel almost squish me and end my life. Um, Did some climbing when I was younger, my early 20s. Fell off the side of a cliff into uh, a stream. I thought that was the end of me, but it wasn't. Um, and then when I rode across the ocean, our boat capsized in the Bermuda Triangle. I thought I was going to die there and didn't. And whenever I've gotten closer to death, it's, I've just felt I was closer to clarity and meaning. And that was, um, that was a good mental state to be in. So I think, you know, from a, you know, we all have our time. We're, we have limited time on this planet and like, obviously I'd, I don't want to die tomorrow. I've got you know children and a wife that motivate me. I've got a business and businesses that I support that I want to see um, be successful. But death, I know I had this thing on my phone. I, t- I took it off, but for a while it was one of these 
how many days do you have left to live? Like, okay, you've got eight, you know, I don't know if it was like 18,000 or 180,000 days left to live. And just, okay, there's a finite yeah. piece of it. And there's another, actually, it's another tool that I've used. I took it from Tim Urban. Have you ever been exposed to him? He's got nope. a blog called Wait But Why. Okay. And he has a, um, I, I built something called the, the life chart. And uh, he has this great blog where he talks about breaking down your life into weeks. Say, say you have 90 years to live or 100 years to live. You can break that down and say, okay, I've got 100 years. Say, what have I achieved every year? And then you can break that in months and say, oh, how many months do I have, have I lived and how many months do I have left? And you can break that into weeks. And then you can start breaking that down into things that are meaningful. Like, okay, how many books do I read on average per year? Okay, I read five books a year. How many years do I have left? Oh, I've got 60 years left. So I'm, I'm only going to read 300 more books in my life. So if you're only going to read 300 books in your life, what are you, what are you going to read? You know, yeah. Pick up wisely. And, you know, acknowledging the finite nature of life is, can be incredibly empowering uh, as long as there's not too much fear yeah. associated with it. And I'm not an expert in end of life fear. I can really only tell you my own personal experience in that um, having come close to death um, in reflection, it wasn't that bad. Yeah. It's a great way to look at it. And I like that. I do. I do really like that outlook as well. And that's why this is why I like asking the question. I do get really interesting answers, but that is all I have for you today, Adam. And okay. it's been the most interesting conversation I've had with another human being in an extremely long time. As I say, I would love to have you back for a part two because I've got so many more questions to ask. But for all of the listeners, the link to Adam's book, The Responsibly Ethic, is going to be in the show notes below. I will also leave all of Adam's social platforms. And is there anything else you want me to leave in the description for the listeners? Um. <laughs> My, uh, I think that's it. <laughs> social platforms. <laughs> social pla I'm, I'm most active on LinkedIn. Um, but yep. I'm, I'm relatively accessible. And, awesome. Uh, the, yeah, the book, the responsibility ethic. It was, it was ten years of writing and uh, worth a read. It's, it's worth a read <laughs> for sure. So, Adam, once again, thank you for joining me on this episode of CEO Journals. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast and I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible business owners and entrepreneurs every single week. So you can really help me out by smashing that subscribe button and by leaving me a five-star review over in the iTunes store. It literally takes two seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. Make sure you tune into the next episode where I'm going to be talking to another incredibly interesting guest. I'll be discussing their journey and providing tips to all you aspiring and current business owners. Have a lovely rest of your day. And once again, thank you for tuning in to CEO Journals. <laughs>